have your Bibles this morning, and I hope that you do join me in turning to the book of Nahum, chapter 1. Nahum, chapter 1, and verse number 9. We began in this minor prophet book, minor not for its impact or its message, but for its size, on last Sunday, the natural follow-up to the book of Jonah. Both Jonah and Nahum directed their ministries by the call of God toward the cities of Nineveh and the empire of Assyria. In that first section of Nahum, specifically chapter or, or verses 2 through 8, Nahum is describing a day of full and final judgment when the evil of this world will be judged and those who take refuge in God will be forever saved often referred to in other biblical context as the day of the Lord, the promise that a day is coming when God brings fully and finally both judgment and salvation, judgment against the world, salvation for his people. So in verses 2 through 8, things are pretty generic. It's kind of a general, broad message that a day is coming when full salvation is received and full judgment is issued forth by God. Typically, we have no problem whatsoever affirming that kind of message. In fact, we could be supportive of and often celebrate perhaps in our hearts that a day is coming when justice is served. Something about that notion creates in us a certain gladness of heart. The idea that although we enjoy salvation in Jesus at this given moment, we will receive it in its fullness. What we are today is not, not all we will be. There is yet more to be received. And when we reflect on what awaits us in Jesus, we rejoice at that idea. The trick is we rejoice at this far-off, distant, somewhat vague description of the service of justice and the fullness of salvation while trembling at our immediate circumstances. Now, there's a disconnect, right? So what's happening here in verses 9 through 15 of chapter 1 is that Nahum is drawing down that broad, somewhat general message and applying it to the specific circumstances of Judah's life and history. So what I want to encourage you to do this morning is you think about what Nahum 1, 9 through 15 says is to draw down the promise of God's justice and salvation to your personal circumstances, such that you cease from your anxiety, the trembling and fear can stop, and you can find boldness and confidence for the future, given the goodness and the faithfulness of our God. What happens in the passage before us is that God promises victory over a specific enemy. And Nahum is noting here that the promises of salvation and judgment are not just vague promises for some time far out in the future. They are personal. They are certain. They are now. Nahum chapter 1, beginning in verse number 9. If you found your way there, join me in standing out of respect and honor for the reading of God's holy word. Nahum 1.9. The Bible says, whatever you plot against the Lord... He will bring it to complete destruction. Oppression will not rise up a second time, for they'll be consumed like entangled thorns, like the drink of a drunkard, and like straw that is fully dry. One has gone out from you, 
who plots evil against Yahweh and is a wicked counselor. This is what the Lord says. Though they are strong and numerous, they'll still be mowed down, and he will pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no longer, for I will now break off his yoke from you and tear off your shackles. The Lord has issued an order concerning you. There will be no offspring to carry on your name. I will eliminate the carved idol and cast image from the house of your gods. I will prepare your grave, for you are contemptible. Look to the mountains, the feet of one bringing good news and proclaiming peace. Celebrate your festivals, Judah. Fulfill your vows, for the wicked one will never again march through you. He will be entirely wiped out. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. Right up front, let's acknowledge a certain difficulty when it comes to reading prophetic books like Nahum. One of the challenges is it can be difficult to determine who God is speaking to when in a given passage. So there are two groups that are addressed in the prophet Nahum. One is Assyria. Assyria is the enemy of the people of God. In fact, Assyria is identified in Nahum as the enemy of God himself. And again and again and again, God says, judgment is coming for you, Assyria. They had received grace in the past. God had shown them great mercy through the prophet Jonah. They had repented of their sin, and God had relented from the disaster he decreed for them. God had restored them in repentance But now they had filled their sin and the long-suffering of God, his patience toward them had run out, and the judgment of God would now come. Assyria is one party addressed. The second is Judah. When we talk about Judah, we're talking about the southern tribes, the two southernmost tribes of Israel made up of two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, the northern tribes, the ten remaining tribes were in the north at this interval in Israel's history, the southern territory, Judah and Benjamin, is just about all that is left. We can refer sometimes more broadly to Israel as the people of God, but the nation of Judah is the specific nation, it seems, in view in the prophet of Nahum. So who is God addressing? Assyria and Judah. Now the question is, when is he addressing them? Because there are these abrupt transitions in our passage that make it difficult to know who God is speaking to when. Now, I could give you some grammatical reasons for drawing the lines of distinction that we do, but you would all fall asleep. I learned a long time ago as a pastor, not everything that excites me, anyone else cares about. So I'm just going to give them to you, and you can just trust me, and I'll support them a little bit along the way. Fair enough? Some of you are going, hallelujah. In verses 9 and 10, God is addressing, yes, if you're a note taker, these are good to mark. In verses 9 and 10, God is addressing Assyria, the enemy of God and the enemy of God's people. In verses 11 through 13, God is addressing the nation of Judah. Now, in some of your Bibles, there are these categorical headings that are intended to help you navigate these issues. Those are themselves not inspired. They're insertions placed there by Bible translators, and you may note a discrepancy at this point. Some put the transition after verse number 11, but I'm going to argue this morning that verses 11 through 13 are God's address to Judah. And then in verse number 14, God returns to Assyria. 
And then in verse 15, God addresses Judah once more. So the rhythm is this, Assyria, Judah, Assyria, Judah. And in each instance, God addresses Judah. He foretells their deliverance, their salvation. And in each instance of God addressing Assyria, he is foretelling their disaster, their destruction, their judgment, and it seems their total annihilation. Look at verse 9. Whatever you plot against the Lord, he will bring it to complete destruction. Oppression will not rise up a second time, for they will be consumed like entangled thorns, like the drink of a drunkard, and like straw that is fully dry. Assyria, it, it doesn't matter what you attempt, what you plot or plan to do. You are no force for the God of heaven. There is no earthly power that can withstand the judgment of our God. His authority will not be usurped. He will not abdicate his throne. He will not tremble in fear. He's the creator of all the universe. And no matter what Assyria manages to plot, he will bring it to complete destruction. The psalmist asks why the nations rage and the people plot vain things. The Bible depicts any opposition to the God of heaven as an exercise in futility. What Nahum is describing here is the reality that there is coming a day, in fact, there is coming a moment when every fist shaken in the face of our God is brought under the severe judgment of God and the full justice of heaven is brought to bear against those who have opposed him. This is astonishing, both to Assyria and to Judah, because Assyria has made a practice of beating their chest, celebrating their prowess. They believe themselves to be invincible. They have quite literally among themselves plotted against the Lord and plotted against God's people, and with conviction in their heart, they have discussed their devised plans for the downfall of God's people and the overthrowing of God's authority even in the promised land. But God would bring their plans to destruction. This is a surprising word for the people of Judah who have regarded the Assyrian Empire as this immovable object this insurmountable obstacle, this, this, this thing, this object, this enemy force that we simply cannot get over. They are the greatest threat to our existence. But God says here not only that they will be completely destroyed, but that their, their destruction at his hand comes about with ease. They will be consumed, verse 10 says, like entangled thorns, like the drink of a drunkard, and like straw that is fully dry. I don't know if you are following the imagery of the verse, but drinks don't last long in the hands of a drunkard, and straw that is fully dry is quite quickly consumed. God says not only will Assyria be destroyed, she will be destroyed with ease. The principle here is that the greatest earthly power is no match for God. He has never been defeated. He never will. And to fight against the Lord is itself an exercise in futility. I wonder if in the hearts and minds, in the deep, dark places of hearts, those places not often talked about, if those who truly shake their fist in the face of our God ever tremble and wonder if what they have convinced themselves of will come to pass, or if their fate will look strangely, strangely like that foretold in the Scripture. 
What we can be assured of for any number of reasons is that one day, yet again, the justice and the judgment of God will be served. But Nahum describes something far more specific. Immediately, in the present, at this moment, this is not again a vague concept of wickedness being judged. This is itself a specific enemy. Now, I'll concede that justice doesn't always come according to our timeline. That there are times when we would desire for immediate retribution. And it can feel as though those who have given themselves over to the wrong things in the wrong ways are getting ahead, even while we in our efforts at faithfulness, at the right things, are moving behind. I had this conversation after our first service about an individual's real-life family experience, one trying to do what was right, observing those around him doing the wrong things, yet they were moving ahead while he seemed to be decreasing. And the difficulty of trusting the provision of God under those circumstances in that kind of scenario. Listen, I get there can be some challenges. We're looking with eyes of sight rather than eyes of faith at certain moments in that scenario. I get the challenge of that. But you can rest assured that God has not abdicated his throne. He has not grown weary with concerning himself over the affairs of your life, actively participating in every, every, every aspect of your life, unfolding a plan for justice and salvation, even when you can't observe it with eyes of sight. He is actively involved in the very details of your experience. Verse 11, the shift is to Judah. This is where things, in my estimation, get interesting in our passage. The Bible says here, One has gone out from you who plots evil against Yahweh and is a wicked counselor. This is what the Lord says. Though they are strong and numerous, they will still be mowed down and he will pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no longer. For I will now break off his yoke from you and tear off your shackles. Whoever the you of verse 11 is, the one who's gone out from you, is a major point of focus in these verses. Again, verse 11 says, one has gone out from you who plots evil against Yahweh and is a wicked counselor. Now, Nahum is not describing a situation in which a citizen of Judah has gone out from them plotting evil against the Lord and functioning as a wicked counselor among the people. In fact, there's a moment in Judah's history when an ambassador from Assyria enters into the city of Jerusalem, and he taunts and he mocks the people for their faith in the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and seeks to create fear in their heart so that they will ultimately surrender to the Assyrian Empire. He's eventually chased away. That episode lies in the history of Israel at this interval in her history, and Nahum may have himself been an eyewitness to the unfolding of these events. Now, I want us to turn back in our Bible to 2 Kings chapter 18. 2 Kings chapter 18 and 19. These chapters, I believe, are referenced by Nahum in verse number 11. And not only do they provide helpful context to the passage we're studying today, it provides helpful context to the whole book of Nahum. Now, I'll give you a little background as you're turning back to 2 Kings 18. 2 Kings 18 begins with Hezekiah becoming king of Judah. 
Now, if you're familiar with Israel's history, you have the northern territory, the northern kingdom ruled by various kings. There are 19 kings in total who rule in Israel, and they're all bad. There's not a single good king in the bunch. But in the south, although most kings are bad, there are periodically kings in the lineage of David who take the throne of Judah who rule in a noble, God-fearing way. That was the case with Hezekiah, who arises to the throne in 2 Kings chapter 18. In fact, Hezekiah serves so faithfully that it's observed in, in 2 Kings 18.5 that Hezekiah trusted in the Lord God of Israel. Not one of the kings of Judah was like him, either before him or after him. He remained faithful to Yahweh and did not turn from following him, but kept the commands the Lord had commanded Moses. The Lord was with him, and wherever he went, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. Did you catch that last part? He rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. Now, at this particular time in Israel's history, the northern kingdom has fallen or is falling to the Assyrian Empire. Judah's neighbor to the north has succumbed to the violence and the power of the Assyrian Empire. And many of the Israelites in the northern territory have been killed or carried away as captives to the Assyrian people. The challenge for kings in Judah was that Assyria was constantly harassing the southern territory, now encroaching on her borders. The temptation was to pay what was described as a tribute or a tax to the Assyrian king so that he would promise not to invade your territory. You pay us so much money, we won't invade your territory, and all will be well. The problem with such an approach is that God had called his people to trust not their revenue streams, their capacity for paying tribute, but to trust his provision of protection and oversight for the people of God. In other words, he would say to the kings through various prophets, do not pay the tribute, but let this be an occasion for you to demonstrate your reliance on my provision. You trust in me. Lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge me, and I'll prove my power, and I'll prove my faithfulness in providing for you in the most unlikely of circumstances. And things were going well. Hezekiah was leading faithfully, honoring and adhering to the commands that God gave Moses, and then Assyria invaded. And the fortified cities of Judah were captured by the Assyrians. So in verse 14 of 2 Kings 18, the Bible says that Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent word to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I've done wrong. Withdraw from me. Whatever you demand from me, I will pay. The king of Assyria demanded 11 tons of silver and one ton of gold from King Hezekiah of Judah. So Hezekiah gave him all the silver found in the Lord's temple and in the treasuries of the king's palace. Now, it's not only a regrettable thing that Hezekiah would succumb to the threat of the Assyrian empire, but that he would take tribute from the temple of the Lord to pay the king of Assyria made it all that much worse. If you read further in our passage, you'll find that not only is Hezekiah raiding the temple treasury, he's literally stripping the gold coverings from the post of the temple itself, paying this debt, this tribute tax to the king of Assyria. Now, the problem with blackmail, 
fact, one of the many problems with blackmail, which is effectively what is happening between Assyria and Hezekiah, is, is that it's really not a trustworthy, reliable system. When you're operating under the table, there is no recourse for the violation of a contractual agreement. So Assyria gladly receives the 11 tons of silver, effectively robbing the temple treasury. They then send the prince of princes. They send an ambassador, one described as the Rabshakeh in our passage. And he comes to the city of Jerusalem with the intent of creating opposition to Hezekiah's leadership, fear in the heart of the people, and creating a revolt that will result in the surrender of Judah to the authority of Assyria. In fact, he says in 1831, don't listen to Hezekiah. This is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me and surrender to me. Then every one of you may eat from his own vine and his own fig tree, and everyone may drink water from his own cistern. Continuing in verse 32, he goes on to say, Don't listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Now think about that. Don't listen to Hezekiah. He's promising the Lord will deliver you, but you better not listen to him. We're coming. We're invading. We're powerful. We're going to rob you of this land. But if you surrender, if you'll trust not the Lord, but lean on your own understanding, understand, see the reasonability of surrendering to Assyria and assimilating to our culture, denying the faith of your fathers and the history of Israel as a nation, dream of the ways this will work out well for you. Hezekiah hears of the Rabshakeh's message in Jerusalem. He's told by his messengers, and Hezekiah realizes, perhaps for the first time, that he, has, that he is an error, that he's made a mistake, that, that leaning on his own understanding has resulted in an absolute disaster. So he calls for Isaiah the prophet, the same Isaiah the prophet for whom the book of Isaiah is named. And he asked that Isaiah would prophesy, that he would pray, that he would seek the Lord and provide a word from God as to how Hezekiah should move forward. In chapter 19, verses 5 through 7, Isaiah returns the message. Verse 7, he speak, speaking here on behalf of the Lord, I'm about to put a spirit in him, and he will hear a rumor and return to his own land where I will cause him to fall by the sword. Now, the Rabshakeh is constantly creating issues. I want you to hear once more the kind of taunts. When Nahum says, you plot vain things against the Lord, but they'll be brought to destruction. This is the very kind of thing he has in view. Look at verse 10. This prince of princes, this ruler from Assyria says, don't let your God whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be handed over to the king of Assyria. Now things unfold throughout chapter 19, but near its conclusion, Hezekiah gets a, a last message, a final word from the Lord in verses 32 through 34. This is what he says. This is what the Lord says about the king of Assyria. He will not enter this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or build up an assault ramp against it. He will go back on the road that he came and he will not enter this city. And then God doubles down in conclusion in verse 34. I will defend this city and rescue it for my sake and for the sake of my servant David. Now everyone read verse 35. That night, the angel of the Lord went out struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and left. He returned home 
and lived in Nineveh. Now when Nahum the prophet says in verse 11, one has gone out from you who plots evil against Yahweh and is a wicked counselor, he is drawing to the memory of those hearers of his message, to the recipients of this message, what God had done in the past. And the point here is that given what God has done in the past, he is reliable, faithful, and trustworthy to be believed, to be trusted, to provide for the needs of his people in the future. I've thought a great deal about the promise of Romans 8.32 in looking at this message, verses 9 through 15. Each of these verses serve to bring that message to mind, where the Bible says that he didn't even spare his own son. How would he now withhold all we need? Our confidence, our hope, the way we shore our hearts up in boldness and conviction that God would provide for the needs of both justice and salvation in the future is his past commitment both to justice and salvation. You're able to look back across the scope of your life and to note ways, times, and moments that God showed up, that God showed you favor, that God provided for your deliverance, for your salvation, that God executed justice in your life, in your experience. His past faithfulness is our assurance of his future grace over every area of our life. Do you remember what God had done in the past? One has gone out from you, plots evil against Yahweh, and is a wicked counselor. And just the way that ruler of rulers, that rapshakah, that prince of prince was destroyed in times past, this immovable object, this insurmountable force will now at last be destroyed finally by your faithful God who is in heaven. Verse 12, this is what the Lord says. They're strong and they're numerous. They'll still be mowed down. And he'll pass away. Though I've afflicted you, I will afflict you no longer. For I will now break off his yoke from you and tear off your shackles. The point of verses 9 and 10 is to note that the greatest earthly power is no match for our God. But perhaps the counterpoint or the counterpart to that principle in verses 11 through 13 is to note that the weakest man in the hands of God is safe from all his enemies. The army of Israel did not raise a sword, and 185,000 men of Assyria fell. No one could doubt that it was God who had brought them victory. God had been at work. God had moved on behalf of Israel as a people. And often what we perceive to be his slack, his absence in concern, long-suffering that is far too long to suit our fancy, It's God's affording the turning of events, the opportunity to set a dark contrast for what he will do as an an exhibition of his great grace and power, something only he can be credited with performing. Verse 14, the passage shifts back to Assyria. The Bible says here, the Lord has issued an order concerning you. There will be no offspring to carry on your name. I will eliminate the carved idol and cast image from the house of your gods. I will prepare your grave for you are contemptible. The passage seems to be geared directly at the king of Assyria, but it seems likely that the king of Assyria stands as representative of all the people of 
Assyria. To all the people, there will be no offspring to carry on your name. Your carved idols and cast images will be destroyed or removed from your religious houses, and your grave will be prepared because God has decreed you are contemptible. This is a quite stern message. There's something of a pattern established in our passage. Their, their name is taken away in verse 14. There will be no offspring to carry on your name. Their idols are taken away. He said he would eliminate the carved idol and the cast image. And ultimately their life is taken away. I will prepare your grave for you are contemptible. What's being described here is that God would take away their source of pride. That God would remove the sources of pride from those who are haughty in spirit, who believe themselves to be above judgment and justice and without need for forgiveness and salvation, those who would again shake their fist in the face of God, God would take away the source of their pride. Now, I hope as we're studying along in the book of Nahum, you are more closely identifying with the people of Judah than the people of Assyria people of Judah being the people of God. I hope that you're identifying with them and you're finding hope in the promise that the fullness of salvation is coming unto us through God's only son, Jesus Christ, that we are the recipients of the fullness of God's promise in the new covenant. The idea of the service of justice, that that makes you, you swell with enthusiasm and gladness of heart of what God has promised he would bring to pass. But be careful that you don't miss the subtle applications of those passages directed specifically at the men of Assyria. A warning against our pridefulness, our tendency to drift toward idolatry. This pattern established here in our passage, the removal of name, power, pride, reputation, the removal of certain idols, and, and eventually the removal of one's life often sets the pattern for God's operation, even in the lives of his people, when we drift in the direction of idolatry. He says, I'm going to take away your identity. For, for those of you who identify with the things of this world more closely than the things of God, who find your sense of self-worth in your work, in a certain skill, in a certain talent, in a certain ability, in your financial or social standing. God will take it away. God will remove your source of pride to bring humility to a haughty spirit. He will take it away. I, I find it fascinating. There, there's there's a, a, a sociological study that's unfolding before our very eyes in this world's fixation and fascination with identity and the way individuals identify or identify themselves in our world. There's a direct connection between the idea here that they'll be left with no offspring to carry on their name and the idolatry that follows in the very next stanza. Often discussions of identity or how one identifies in our culture today is revealing certain idols, usually idols attached to some manner of sexual perversion, but there are other expressions of idolatry at play as well. God says, I will take them away. I'll take your name, I'll take your reputation, and I'll kill your idols in order to bring you to a place of desperation, in order that you might see your need for grace and mercy and forgiveness, a need that can only be satisfied 
in Jesus Christ. And ultimately, he says, I'll take your life. In my own salvation experience, I can observe this pattern. God removing the sources of pride from my life, crushing the idols in my life, and for a moment, the conviction personally that my life itself would be taken away. God moves and works according to this pattern to create repentance even in his own people. God moves and works to create desperation that results in salvation in the lives of those he would call to himself. If you're holding fast to your idols, if you found your identity in the things of this world and not the only son of God, Jesus Christ, you should hasten away from your idolatry. Cease to take pride in the things of this world. Find your identification most closely with the only begotten Son of God. Find your place, your name, your inheritance, your security, your community. Find your comfort, find your satisfaction, find your fulfillment in Christ and in Christ alone. You can continue to drink from the broken cisterns of this world and you'll come up thirsty again and again and again and again or receive and embrace the strong invitation of our Savior who invites that we would drink from the fountain of the water of life and find satisfaction eternally for our souls. The attention is turned back to Judah. In verse 15, the Bible says here, look to the mountains to the feet of one bringing good news and proclaiming peace. Celebrate your festivals, Judah, fulfill your vows, for the wicked one will never again march through you. He will be entirely wiped out. That empire that seemed the immovable object, the insurmountable force, your arch nemesis who could not be defeated, it's as good as done. Often when God speaks of impending judgment or even the salvation of his people, he speaks as though it has already been performed. He speaks as though it's already come to pass. The reason is that God always keeps his promises. When your hand is on the wheel, you ultimately decide how you arrive at your destination. God's hand is firmly fixed on the wheel of our life and on the wheel of this world. God seems to indicate his intention to work in such a way that only he can receive the credit, only he can receive the glory. Judah's instructed here in verse 15 to celebrate her festivals, Judah, fulfill your vows. It seems as though they may have ceased their festival celebrations for a season, given the imminent threat that Assyria posed at their borders. But here God says, resume your festival celebrations. Get back to the party, Judah. Celebrate. The deal is as good as done. The judgment has as good as past. Remember what God has done in times past. The idea of celebrating a festival, usually the language that is used here has reference to those pilgrim festivals. There are certain festivals prescribed for Israel in the Old Testament to commemorate certain moments in time when God had moved on behalf of the nation in her history. For instance, Jews from all over the Promised Land would have traveled to the city of Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, a time when they remembered those final days of their Egyptian slavery, when God instructed them to paint the blood of the Passover lamb on the doorpost of their home, 
in order to guarantee the death angel would pass over their homes when disaster struck the kingdom of Egypt. And indeed it did. In every home in Egypt, the firstborn was dead, except the homes of those Jews behind a blood-painted doorpost God had provided. And the Passover was to function for them, not only as a celebration of God's provision, but a reminder that God had been good, that God had provided, that God had protected in times past. The Feast of the Tabernacles, which we talked about a few weeks ago, was a time during which the people of Israel were to dwell in booths. They were to remember that season in their history when wandering in the wilderness, God provided for every need. For 40 years, God met their every need. God gave them a cloud in the day. He gave them a fire at night. He gave them bread from heaven. He gave them meat with quail. He gave them water from a rock. He was before them. He was behind them. He was to their left. He was to their right. God met their every need. And that festival functioned not only to celebrate that moment in time in their history, but to remind them that God had been good in providing for their needs in the past. When you think about it, there are parallels between those festival activities and even what we do in baptism. Not only are we commemorating what God has done in the past, but those past faithfulnesses from our God create in us assurance of his reliability for our future. That's what God is reinstituting in our passage. Judah, remember the ways that God has been good to you in the past. Given his remarkable consistency, doesn't it stand to reason he'd be good to you in the future? Now personalize this message. Think for a moment about your own life and experience. Count the ways God has been good to you. How many times has God brought something from the mess that you've made in your experience? Can you remember this morning where you were when God saved you from your sin? The messes that you've made along the way, those scenarios that it seemed like there was just no way out, there's no way that God can bring about deliverance or salvation, and the remarkable things that God has wrought even from those circumstances. Now, doesn't it stand to reason this morning that given the sheer goodness of God toward you in the past, that he could be trusted with your future? Listen, this is a reality. What we talked about in the introduction to this message is, is a real and present danger. For all of our conjecture about what God will do somewhere in the distant future, I'm convinced that there's very little thought, very little meditation on the reality that he can be trusted in the present. Behind your every act of disobedience, behind every ounce of anxiety, behind all your worries and hand-wringing is an absence of confidence that God is good and faithful on the throne of heaven, and he always does what is right. This morning, remember his faithfulness to you, and ask yourselves that great question of Romans 8, 32, how could he who would not withhold his own son, now withhold any good thing from us in Christ Jesus. If God would send his son Jesus to the cross for your salvation, why would he discount meeting the everyday provision essential to your life? 
Why would he turn a blind eye on the work of injustice in your experience? He is good and he is faithful and our remembrance of what God has done in the past should shore our hearts in boldness and conviction and great confidence that what he's done in the past, he'll do again. It's just who he is. That's what God reminds us to remember here in the closing verses of Nahum chapter number one, to remember, to remember, and in doing so find confidence for today and every day to come that even when you cannot trace the work of his hand, he is at work in a million ways you could never begin to imagine. How many times have you looked back across your life and, and you were walking into a situation that you thought to be disastrous. And the product of that situation turned the course of your life in ways that were remarkably positive beyond anything you could have thought or imagined. God knows better what is best for you than you know yourself. And he's always at work in your life, in my life, in just the way we'd have him to be at work if only we had the perspective he has. We don't. So we're left with eyes of faith to trust his goodness. Goodness attested to by his faithfulness every step along the way of the history of our life. That faithfulness shoring up in our heart of confidence that every step that remains is a step taken under the protection and the provision of a good and faithful God. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word, for its truth, and these moments to consider your goodness. Lord, you have revealed to us that you are jealous for worship and glory and honor and praise. We're thankful for those episodes in our lives personally when you have worked in such a way that only you could receive the credit or the glory for it. Time and time again, you reveal, Lord, through the circumstances of life, that you are our sufficiency. May today and even the next moments prove to be yet another occasion. May your son Jesus get all the glory. We ask it in his name. Amen.